welcome to the Voice of Family Business on Capitol Hill. It's great to have you with us. With each podcast from Family Enterprise USA, we bring you the latest news, expert opinions, and insights affecting the country's largest employer, the American family business. If you like this series, please remember to subscribe and sign up for the alerts as future shows are posted wherever you download your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Preston Root, a Family Enterprise USA member, board member, and longtime supporter. In this episode, we bring you a lively and in-depth discussion on the current political landscape in Washington, D.C. with well-known political researcher and strategist, Dr. Frank Luntz, and Mick Mulvaney, former Director of Office of Management and Budget and White House Chief of Staff, and our host, Pat Soldano. Now let's listen in on what these experts have to say about the critical government policies affecting our country's multi-generational family businesses. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Pat Soldano. I'm president of Family Enterprise USA and Policy and Taxation Group. If you don't know who we are, we advocate for multi-generational family businesses in America, all sizes and all industries and family offices. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me my good friend, Dr. Frank Luntz. You may know him from his many appearances on news shows. He is a political pollster, researcher, strategist, and messaging expert, as I will know. So Frank and I have been working together since 1998. Uh, In addition, Frank has asked his good friend, Mick Mulvaney, former director of Office of Management and Budget, to join us and also was acting chief of staff in the White House. To say the least, I'm thrilled to have both of you with me today on this podcast. So thank you so much for joining. So let's get right into it. What we're gonna talk about today is family businesses, family offices, successful individuals, and their lifetime savings, as we've learned from the language that Frank has helped us develop. So each of you have been very involved in tax policy, economic policy in this country. And so I'm gonna ask the 30,000 foot level question, which is how does this come about? How does tax policy in this country ultimately get created and ultimately get become legislation? Again, I know it's complicated. I know there's a lot of political aspects of it, but give us an answer at kind of the 30,000 foot level and you guys can answer independently. And then if you wanna um, answer for each other in terms of uh, you know having a dialogue, I'm fine doing that. I'll start and then see if, uh, and I'll take a specific example, which is the uh, the, the Trump tax policies of uh, 2017. That was really driven in large part by the president. Um, certainly it, uh, it fell on fertile soil in the House. Paul Ryan was the speaker at the time. Kevin Brady was the chairman of Ways and Means in the House. And the, uh, the Republicans also controlled the Senate at the same time. Um, but the president had made that one of the things, one of his priorities that he wanted to do. Why is that? By the way, he used to run a family business, a large family business, but the Trump organization was a family operation. And he simply knew that it was too confusing um, and too difficult. And he had spent, I think he, if he said it once, he said it a hundred times, Mick, I spent too much money on accountants. Um, it needs to be simpler. And that that's what really got the ball rolling. There's all sorts of different ways, Pat, for it to happen. It could be a grassroots thing coming up. It could be a top-down type of thing. Um, it could be a presidential candidate running on a particular thing and making that part of his, his platform and so forth. But in this particular circumstance, it started with President Trump and then was sort of taken over by that by the House uh, and the Senate, and rightly so. Gary Cohn, who at the time was our uh, 
head of uh, the National Economic uh, Council was uh, was a key player as well. But it, it, in that particular circumstance, it was top down. But again, it was it was pushing against an open door. But I, I, I have to think that if the president in that circumstance, you can make it any president in this, in this example, if the president isn't really pushed into it, is it is it leaning into it? It probably doesn't get done. Starts with agitation and anger. Agitation either at, and I'll use both sides, either at we're working harder and we're taking home less money because of the tax bills, or anger at the perception that some people don't pay their fair share. If if it's the agitation for how much that gets sent to Washington, then you know that the Republicans are going to win the next election. If it's anger at people not paying their fair share, you know it's going to be Democrats. And so we have this constant rub. Frank, let me. Does complexity fit 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 into the same model as in terms of upset about how much money you're spending, also upset about how hard it is to pay your taxes? Does that factor in or not? It does, and that's the principle of simplicity, and that's one of the reasons why there's so much support for a flat tax, so much support for eliminating loopholes. The idea that people have to spend valuable time and resources on accountants, as the former president said, really does bother people. But in the end, whether it actually happens or not requires some sort of grand effort nationwide where the public's voice is heard. And Pat, one of the reasons why uh, they were able to make significant strides on the debt tax is literally the changing of the language. When it's the estate tax, people think of wealth. When it's the death tax, they think that you're being taxed simply because a relative of yours, usually a parent, dies. And that may kill the business as well. But when you want to get a thorough, significant change in policy, you need the public engaged as well. Well, you both brought up the Trump Tax Act, and I'm really glad you did because that's one of my questions. In that bill, in that act that was passed by Congress and signed by the president, corporate America got a 21% tax rate. Family businesses are paying 37%. And we have learned from our work that 80% of family businesses operate as a pass-through entity. That's why they're paying 37%. Uh, and that's why income tax is their top issue. So why did that happen? Why, do, why does corporate America get the tax break and family businesses who generate 59% of the jobs in this country don't get the same break? Go ahead, Frank. Go first. Because the communication stinks. What is the most popular family business? A family restaurant, a Greek restaurant, an ethnic restaurant, where the family comes over from the foreign country starts this great business, becomes a, a, a central component of the community where everyone loves them. If that's what this is about, if that's the family business, then the public says absolutely give them a break. The fact is, I think some of the messaging hasn't been as effective, hasn't been personalized, humanized, individualized. Uh, Mick, what is the policy reason for this? Yeah, it's it, it, you, you, it's actually Frank. It's not that far removed. It's the next step in the chain. Since since the education process hasn't been as effective as you might like, this is what happens, and this goes back Pat to 2011, not 2017. But it hadn't changed that. I'm gonna go back now to my days in Congress. I was on the Budget Committee, and in my first year in Congress, uh, we, we had a, a meeting, a sit down meeting about the corporate tax. 
Um, and we were going to work on a proposal. Uh, Paul Ryan was the budget chairman at the time. And he said, we're working on the corporate tax. And I was the new guy on the committee, so I got to talk last. And I raised my hand and I said, look, I, I got a question. This is great. I love corporate tax. But, you know, 80% of the corporations don't pay the corporate tax. They pay, you know, they pay the individual income tax. Three quarters of the room, four fifths of the room had no idea what I was talking about. They did not understand the difference between a C corp and an S corp. They had never seen a K one. Members of Congress are not stupid. Some of them are, but me, me, most of them are not. It's just they've not been exposed to that. If you've not been in a small business, you don't know what a K one is. You don't know what an LLC is. You don't know what an S corp is, right? If all you ever done is, if you worked in the military, if you were a teacher, if you worked for somebody else, or you worked for a big business. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't be exposed to that naturally, organically. And it was a real heavy lift to try and educate some of the people about what that was. That was still a factor in 2017. We we did do some individual uh, reforms and so forth that we thought helped folks. But you're right. We, we never got through that that S corps pay pay the pay the income, pay the individual tax and not the corporate rate. Based on the polling that we did for you, the public absolutely sees the difference between a corporation and a family business, even a family business versus a, uh, just a traditional smaller business or medium-sized business. They like the idea that it goes, and I'll quote, from generation to generation to generation. It's considered the American dream. It's considered the success story. And it's not just that a parent wants to pass it down to their children who will pass it down to their children. It's the idea of safety and stability and predictability. It's an essential part of this, of our economy. Frank, Go ahead. I was at dinner um, last week with a bunch of chiefs of staff, and I won't give away a lot of the conversations, but I sat with Mac McClarty, who was the chief of staff for Clinton. And we were going around the table talking about what was the best job we ever had, right? And, you know, a lot of them said chief of staff, some of them didn't. Mac said it was running a, a, a generational business and being able to hand it over to my kids. And that was unsolicited, a Democrat. Um, but it's interesting you say that, that that generation to generation language I've not been familiar with, but I've heard it just in the last week from somebody who was the chief of staff and could have easily said, well, you know, chief of staff was the greatest job ever. No, no, it was that running a generational business and turning it over to my kids was the was the first thing that came to his mind. Very powerful stuff. Even if well, some I'm children so don't want to work with their parents, every parent wants to be able to pass along a business to their children. It's a source of pride. It's it's a, it's about human nature, and we don't celebrate it. And we used to celebrate it, but we don't celebrate it enough. So, Pat, the people going to watch this video, hopefully, they're going to engage the public in this effort because when you tax them, when you take away, when you confiscate the percentage income that's now done, so many of these businesses have to be sold, and that's not the American dream. For a lot of people, that's the American nightmare. And I think we could do a better job if those businesses themselves would speak up and be heard. Yeah, and to that point, I'm so glad to hear both of you talk about that because we, we have learned that, Frank, from all the polling and all the work that we've done. So we've realized, as you both said, members of Congress and voters don't have a clue what family businesses are. So we've done a lot of videos around family business. We've done a lot of these podcasts. We've, we're trying to get the message out. And we help form Congress to form a Congressional Family Business Caucus. It's a bipartisan caucus. It's an education caucus. But we're just astounded, as, as you just said, Mick, about how little they really know about family businesses. So is there hope? I mean, if we continue to do this work, if we continue to get the message out there, is there hope that 
Congress will see the distinction between family businesses and corporate America and lighten up on the tax and economic policy that they impose on them? You know, the key there is to find the right advocates and the right champions from within the body. Okay, there's no way for an ordinary member of Congress to to keep up with all the issues that he or she has to deal with, let alone be an expert in any of those issues. I certainly wasn't um, on legal matters. For example, I stopped practicing law 25 years ago, but I knew that my friend Trey Gowdy had been a federal prosecutor, had been a, had been a, a, a prosecutor at the state level, and so forth. So when legal matters came up, I would go to Trey and say, "Now, Trey." Tell me about this. So I was getting good information from a good source, and he became an advocate on that issue and a champion on the floor. You've got some very capable family business people in the House right now. I think that uh, Mike Kelly, a car dealer from Pennsylvania, is in that business. I think Roger Williams, a car dealer from Texas, is in that business. Again, and it's not just car dealers. Frank says there's restaurateurs in there. There's um, you know a big part of uh, big businesses for families in my part of the world is the beer distributorships. Uh, beer, right. beer and wine. Those are those are multi generational families. You've got good folks there. You just need to sort of take them, hug them, and make sure that everybody else on the floor looks to them um, on these particular uh, uh, issues. That's one of the keys. Cuba. I never followed Cuba. I knew that Mario Diaz Balart was from there, so I always went to him on those issues. You got to find those champions and make sure that they engage because they can be your best sort of uh, advocates uh, in Congress. It's not about perform. It's not about profit. It's about performance. So the issue is we all have different definitions of what makes a small, medium, or large business. We know what makes a family business. We know that it's intergenerational, and the more generations, the better. And we know that we want to give access to everyone to pursue their vision of the American dream. If you talk about performance, uh, jobs, uh, opportunities, uh, improvement in the community, donations, charity, philanthropy, that's all. They will accept you making a profit if you provide good performance. And secondly, everybody wants to get there. It is as aspirational, but if it looks like you're protecting, you're preventing other people from getting on that path to a better future, then they won't help you. If you've given them that roadmap that they can succeed, then they will back you. So again, I listen to the messaging, not from your organization, because your organization's got it, but I listen to the messaging on Capitol Hill and it frustrates me. Well, and so I'm, I'm glad that you brought up earlier the death tax and you were just talking about charitable giving. We've learned, in fact, we have videos around all the charitable giving that family businesses do in this country. 82% of them give locally right, to a local charity. So what members of Congress I don't think have connected the dots on is if that family business has to be sold to pay the death tax or for some other reason, the family loses their livelihood, the employees lose their livelihood, and all that charitable giving goes away. So, you, Frank, you know that I've been passionate about a lot of tax and economic issues that affect family businesses, but the death tax is one of the most onerous. And yet here it is, it's still around after over 100 years, Granted, the rate's a little lower, the exemption's higher, but it's still here. So, you know, my question to you is, why is it still here when it generates so little revenue and and, it, and yet it affects so many people? Most of those people don't, they're not even, in, they're not even involved in the payment of the tax or the cost of the tax, but the company itself. And I mean, and this question is to both of you. That's Good, I'll give a cynical answer after Frank gives the optimistic one. Go ahead, Frank. No, I will not give an optimistic one. I will be this negative cynical one. And now I guess you'll be the even more negative and even more cynical. 
Uh, I watch sports teams get sold. People who've been part of the community for decade after decade because of this tax. First, you have to individualize, personalize, and humanize these businesses so people understand them and feel them. And second, you have to show that the consequence of this is worse than, than not doing it at all, because in the end, you're going to be demagogued. In the end, it's, you're going to be being seen as protecting the wealthy and successful. And by the way, I urge everyone listening again, it's not that you're wealthy, it is that you're successful. And we're supposed to reward success in this country, not punish it. We found that that language works as well. If you've done well, you should be able to, to keep it. You have to share, you have to give to your community. We're not saying don't tax at all. And then the third argument is that you give Washington any money and they're gonna waste it. How do we govern, make government more efficient, more effective and more accountable? If you give government less to spend, they will waste less. All three of those arguments work and they actually work better than the arguments about taxing the rich. And the problem is that the challenge is often those arguments are not heard in Washington. Pat, I'll give the, uh, and it's very rare, and Frank and I know each other now for 15 years, very rare that I am more cynical than Frank. Uh, in fact, it's very rare that anybody's more cynical than Frank, but I'm gonna give it my best shot. Um, uh, there's a large group of people in Washington, D.C. They tend to align with one party, but it's not entirely aligned with one party. I wanna make sure that that, that that message is clear. Who don't care about what you just said. They don't care about charitable giving. It doesn't matter to them. That's not, that's not your job. That's the government's job. If you don't give money to the local thing, that's fine because the government should be funding that anyway. Uh, and they don't care about businesses having being sold. That, that doesn't register with them. That's not why they went to Washington, D.C. Um, and until you change that attitude, it's going to be very difficult to change the entire place. But that's that's sort of where we come. I, I advise corporations, um, you know, all over the world, um, and they all come in and say, "Well, look, we're we're going to create 600 jobs in this district." And I'm like, "Okay, that's fine." Most members of Congress really don't care about that, or many members of Congress don't really care about that. Um, you know, when you represent a million people, 600 jobs is not that big a deal. When you represent a million people, losing one person or one company that gives charity to the local, you know, the, the local food bank. Eh, you know, that's that's that 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 pales in comparison to being able to tax the rich and make make people pay pay their fair share. That's that's what drives a lot of people, not encouraging charitable giving. So how about how about that, Frank? Did I out cynic you or not? Um, I think we're both. Well, I feel that way about everything that's going on in America. You only feel that way about this tax issue. There you uh, go. We are more divided on a socioeconomic level than we've been at any time since I entered into politics. There is an absolute desire, and there's a part of it that I think is legitimate, which is income inequality. Mm -hmm. We have greater income inequality now, and that has to be addressed because it's agitating people because they feel like they can't get on that path. If you have access to that opportunity, genuine access, not some politician's words, you will allow people to be successful. If you think that road is blocked or that it's cut off to you, you'll become resentful and you'll demand your piece of the pie. So I think actually, and I'm about to say something I've not said until right now, I think it all fits together. And I think that people feel so constrained right now, so nervous in this post-COVID period, 
not feeling secure in their jobs, not being able to afford their homes in many cases, have, still having issues with food and, and, uh, and fuel and healthcare, that that level of anxiety is making your effort more difficult. And if we do a better job at returning back to you work hard, play by the rules, pay your taxes, you too can be in this situation someday. But we're not there now. Well, uh, yeah, I agree with you, Frank. We've had this conversation um, about it's not it's not popular to be wealthy in this country, which is, as you said earlier, we now say successful individuals because it is popular to be successful. So my final question to both of you uh, is this. Uh, Mickey talked earlier about members of Congress and their lack of understanding of family business. So we've identified 100 members of Congress that come from family businesses, to wow. your point, so we can... So we, and that's who we've uh, spoken to in terms of this caucus. So we think the caucus is one way to really get people to understand, as I mentioned earlier, family businesses. But I can't, I can't have you leave this podcast without both of you talking about the obvious presidential election we have coming up. With this election coming up, is there hope that there could be a leader in this country that actually understands family businesses and understands? the tax and economic policy as it affects them, or do we have an uphill battle? Um, I'll go first on that. Uh, Donald Trump worked for a family business. Tim Scott ran his own small business. Uh, he was an insurance salesman. Nikki Haley worked for her family business. Um, I, I don't know um, I don't know Mike Pence's um, background. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, I think, came from nothing or basically nothing, right? And has, has built quite a quite a quite a business. Don't know if it's multi-generational yet because he's the first one to have it. Um, but certainly he'd be key to that. Um, I, Biden, of course, comes from a, a government background, which is entirely different. Kamala Harris, I think, comes from a government background, which is entirely different. Um, but um, so I, I think the answer is yes, that you will. There's a chance for that um, in 2024. I think that there isn't a chance unless the people watching this actually engage in politics. You have to go to a Biden fundraiser and tell the story and begin with begin the question with as a family owned or family probably better family run business as a multi-generational family run business dot 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 remember those words as a multi-generational family run business if you begin your question then the politicians begin to hear your perspective i don't think they'll do it on their own i don't think that they're wired to do it and I, my great frustration, I raised it with, with your organization many times, is that there's too much silence. That if you want to be heard in Washington, you have to speak up, you have to be determined, you have to be repetitive, and that doesn't happen. So it's only through, through podcasts like this that maybe people get the message and realize, don't do it for yourself, don't do it for your family, do it for your country, do it for your future, do it for a term that I believe in. It's not just words to me, economic freedom. And we don't do enough of that. And I wish more people would stand up for it. Appreciate that. That's why we're doing these podcasts. That's why we do these videos. That's why we're creating the caucus with Congress. Um, we're trying to educate, as I keep saying, because we've learned that family businesses are so misunderstood in this country. Um, so I wanna thank both of you for being on this podcast. I think it was fascinating. I know our viewers and our listeners are going to be uh, thrilled 
with listening to this and viewing this. So once again, thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Frank. Cheers. Frank and Mick, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for your time. I know our listeners appreciate your insights and have learned a lot about the challenges facing America and family businesses today. We hope that you like the show today and you subscribe to our podcast um, where each episode discusses the critical issues affecting multi-generational family businesses and their lifetime of savings. You can find this podcast wherever you download your podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's Family Enterprise USA podcast. This is the only series devoted exclusively to the critical issues facing America's family businesses. We hope you liked this episode. Please make sure to subscribe and tell others about our podcast. Having your voice heard in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country can make a difference. This podcast is sponsored by Preston Root, a Family Enterprise USA member, board member, and longtime supporter. We look forward to having you listen in next time.